Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Quint Oga Baldwin, professor of English at Waseda University. Dr. Oga Baldwin, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Thank you, Jonathan. It's good to be here. It is a pleasure to talk to you. Um, as we were talking briefly before we started recording, uh, you worked at the university that I'm working now, uh, Kyushu Sangyo University in Fukuoka. So uh, we didn't cross paths, but it's cool to follow a researcher uh, at Waseda now. And you know, when you were at Kyusandai, yes, did you envision moving on? To Tokyo or to a more pre prestigious school, or what was your goals back then? The, I mean, as always, and everybody, the goal is you know to find uh, the best position possible, and so yeah, so I mean, you know, I'm sure much like yourself and many of the the teachers around you at Kyusan, I kind of came up through the mailroom. I started out as a, an A. Kiowa teacher uh, almost 20 years ago now, and uh, worked my way through the junior high schools and high schools, and uh, mostly in elementary schools as an ALT, mm. and uh, then started teaching at universities after I got my master's at Temple. I see. And uh, the paper that we are going to be discussing today is The Critical Role of the Individual in Language Education, New Directions from the Learning Sciences introduction yes. to the special issue uh, back mm -hmm. in 2019. But before we get into the paper, uh, mm -hmm. you talked about it briefly, but uh, it's nice to get everybody's story. So as far back as you want to go, how did you get interested in this research field and, and what, what brought about you to Japan and, and what made you decide to become an academic? Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I came to Japan in 2003, uh, just after I got out of college, and I was looking for something to do in the post.com bust, and, you know, didn't really know what I wanted to do, and uh, I liked karate a lot, and so I was going to come over here and become, you know, Bruce Lee Jr. or whatever, and then... I uh, I found that I, I really did like teaching. I liked being in the classroom, and I liked working with students. And uh, I really wanted to understand how learners think, how they work, how to interact with people in a better way to make a better learning environment. And so I was doing my master's. I did my master's at Temple. They had a classroom down in Fukuoka where I was originally posted. And... Then uh, ended up at Kyusan, like you said, and moved on from there to Fukuoka University of Education. Oh, okay. Yep. And so I was there for about seven years, and I was in charge of training elementary teachers for the new English curriculum. Hmm. So I was involved with that, and I was trying to help these young Japanese teachers, uh, pre-service teachers at that mm -hmm. time, some in-service teachers. And so I was looking for ways that, that we could improve the, the, the motivational environment of the classroom, the, the current course of study at the time mm -hmm. was very much focused on improving students' liking of English, their enjoyment of learning in English classes. And so I took that as 
kind of my guidepost. And I started looking into the psychology of how young learners go about learning a language, how they enjoy learning, and what is the best way that we can develop well-being. And that mm. brought me towards self-determination theory, mm. which is one of the major psychological theories going about in the world, one of the major motivational theories. And it's a, a theory not only of, again, motivation, but well-being of mm. how we can live our lives. And the explicit goal of the course of study at that time was to build what they called ikiru chikara, which is, you know, a zest for life, mm. as they translated it. And I can't think of uh, any better way to say that than well-being. Mm. So that brought me to self-determination theory, which I did my PhD on, and mm. using that and applying that and finding ways to, to make that a viable approach to education in language classes in elementary schools so that and that that's what brought me to the psychology of language learners and when you were doing your phd were you still teaching full-time yes uh, i was teaching full-time at, uh, at again the university of education and i was uh, i was going and working with my advisor uh dr yoshiuki nakata uh, who's now at Doshisha, but at the time he was at Hyogo University of Teacher Education. Mm -hmm. And so I was working with him and we, we collaborated on a number of papers and uh, that, that led me to, again, uh, the psychology of language learning. Well, very interesting. I mean, you, you come up a lot in papers um, that have been cited and some of the guests that have been on this series. So maybe just for people, I'll give a refresh. Uh, one of your co-authors, Jennifer Larson Hall, yes. she was citation 23. Mm -hmm. um, Stephen Ryan, mm -hmm. uh, citation 81. Ali Alhori has been on the podcast two times and he's actually mm -hmm. coming on. Uh, I think by the time this episode comes out, his, his episode is out and he actually mentioned you by name. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Peter McIntyre, uh, okay. citation 51. Sarah Mercer, uh, Kim Knowles. Mm -hmm. And um, it's kind of interesting. When I started this podcast series, I, I wasn't expecting it to expand as organically as it did. Mm -hmm. But the cool thing is when I started doing these interviews, it kept leading me back to the psychology of language learning. Mm -hmm. And then I found out about you know this organization mm -hmm. and all these mm -hmm. people are engaging in these healthy discussions mm -hmm. in, uh, in a really cool way. And so... Mm -hmm. A lot, a lot of the guests that have been on this podcast series, you mentioned in this paper, which is, which is pretty cool. Not only that, you mentioned the Psychology of Language Learning conference in Tokyo, which yes. St Stephen Ryan had talked in his in his interview. He talked about that was one of the main reasons why he he took up um, windsurfing because he was so burned <laughs> out, you know, organ organizing that conference. <laughs> <laughs> A good way to blow off steam, I guess. Yeah. So, can you talk about that conference because it seemed to influence you in this paper? Yeah, uh, so I had just moved to Waseda uh, the year before the conference, and so you know Stephen was here already. He was organizing it, and he know he knew that I had 
worked with Rich Ryan before, and that I had uh, I, I had done some uh, some translation while he was here. I had uh, co-authored the one of my 2017 papers with him. Uh, you know, wrote it back in 2015, but it was uh, you know it took quite a while to get it to, uh, to get it to the right home, mm. and uh, so. That, uh, so I had worked with him. I knew him, and so you know I had a good personal relationship. And so we, uh, I, I kind of found a way to bring him to to Tokyo for the PLL three conference, and that was you know that was a really good uh, that was a great conference actually. That was uh, you know uh, that was a really wonderful group of people. Um, some phenomenal plenaries by again people who were involved in this special issue. And people who had uh, who had presented there, uh, a lot of that uh, kind of organically worked with uh, with this special issue, uh, because we, you know, Luke uh, and Jennifer and I started talking about this that we kind of need to have uh, a, a broader discussion of individual difference variables that we uh, that we can see. Uh, there's kind of uh, you know, as I mentioned in the paper, there's uh, you know, there, there are kind of these dominant paradigms that have been uh, been leading the way in in the psychology of language learning over the years and they uh, you know a lot of people weren't thinking outside the box and one of the the issues and the, the the kind of frustrations that Luke and I had had over years uh, was was that there was always a question of like why did why didn't you just use you know this theory you know we have a theory um, why are you why are you bringing in, the, in these new theories? And so we came back to that. We were we wanted to have kind of a rebuttal to all the reviewers who, who came who came at us with you know well you should be doing this you should be using this theory and this is the only theory you know why bother with other theories and you know we we wanted to say well no there's a lot of theory out there and that there is you know a lot of valid ways to approach psychology and so that that conference as well had uh, had people who weren't uh, you know rich Ryan uh, for example Mimi bong uh, they weren't uh, specifically language learning specialists they were psychologists mm. and so they came at this from that uh, that angle and so you know we've had a, you know, we've had uh, like you mentioned, Ali uh, has has really been working on trying to expand the uh, the view and the purview of the psychology of language learning to to include many things, to include many theories. And uh, you know his his co-author, frequent co-author Phil Hiver as well. Um, you know he uh, and and many others now in the in this new generation are are starting to come up and saying, well, look education and educational psychology has a lot to offer us and you know in terms of methods in terms of measurement in terms of approaches to the way that we do our research we need to have kind of a, a broad and a, a broader dialogue a more uh, a more diverse dialogue uh, in order to to account for the the shortcomings of the existing theories because no theory is perfect but a lot of them again are useful and mm -hmm. so we want we want to be able to describe things without kind of piecemealing everything together in a in a clutched together way that's not quite as as useful i mean it may be organic but that that process also lacks any kind of uh, you know, top-down 
um, approach, and do, it doesn't it doesn't allow for for us to see how things might work together better if we you know step back a bit and kind of combine ideas in a in a way that uh, that would actually work in. It, it, for for developing hypotheses and for developing good scientific uh, direction, so that's that was a lot of what we were hoping to accomplish. Uh, again, the paper is the critical role of the individual in language education: new directions mm -hmm. from the learning sciences. Yes. Now, when this all came about, mm -hmm. as I w it was, it kind of struck me when I was reading this paper. It's mm -hmm. not that long of a paper, right? But no. as I was reading it, I was thinking. To write this paper, mm. thousands and thousands of hours need to be put into it, right? I mean, there's just so much, right? And I think that's that's one thing that turns off people from entering the field of mode. This is weird. This is a weird thing for me to say because I feel on mm -hmm. one side of the coin, the field mm -hmm. of language learning motivation is extremely popular. Yes. On the other side, I feel like it does push a lot of people away mm -hmm. just because it's just too daunting. And you, you did kind of touch on something where there is this feeling that if you include motivation in your paper, you're going to get ripped to shreds by a reviewer. Yeah. <laughs> and unless you unless you do it with great care. And, and for me, I'm not really focused on motivation as such. It kind of comes up on the periphery. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm almost – I almost try to avoid talking about motivation at all. I almost go out of my way to say, okay, this paper is not about motivation. We might mention it, but you know mm – -hmm. It, so what, what's your kind of take on that? It's popular, but also discouraging at the same time. Well, um, <laughs> I, I think personally, that's, that's the same way that I feel about other aspects of language learning. Uh, you know, for example, uh, assessment, you know, mm. as soon as I bring in some kind of uh, objective measure of student ability, <laughs> I, I'm terrified that I'm going to get ripped to shreds by testing people mm -hmm. uh, for the, you know, why did why did you use this test and not that test? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you use the wrong test, you, you use the wrong measure. And so that's always a risk. That's a that's a risk that we all face. Mm. And so when we're doing research, there's there's always going to be a lot of satisficing. We're always going to be coming back to, well, I couldn't test everything. I can't create, you know, the the grand model of all things. And so I'm only going to focus on this. But unfortunately, we have a, a, a culture of reviewers who look at papers that and and they want to say, well, you know, you're not doing the testing right or you're not doing the motivation right. And, you know, that's very frustrating. And that's that's a very daunting part of of everything we do. And, you know, that's but that's also the nature of academia. I think that's not something that we can get around. So, yeah, it is daunting. But uh, as soon as basically you you, you take a, a a motivation and a listening paper, or you take a, a, a motivation and a vocabulary paper. If you're not doing both of those well, you know, you've, you've got a cart with one wheel or, you know, one of those old timey bicycles with the giant wheel in front <laughs> and this tiny wheel in back that's not really functioning other than to kind of just like prop it up. And so you know, that's, that's always how it feels to me with a lot of research but you know in, in a way that's that's a lot of what we do that's that's satisfying and we're just we're finding ways to to make it work as best we can and so you know 
my my message for that and for anybody else who's coming to motivation is well don't be daunted by this just kind of pick a theory and go with it and be as internally consistent as possible now let's let's go with that because you mentioned one of the frustrating things for yourself and maybe your co-authors along the way is you were getting feedback from reviewers. Mm-hmm. Why are you introducing this theory where you already have an existing theory? Yes. So for kind of the lay person, can you kind of lay it out? Uh, I know you mentioned the Lambert and Gardner uh-huh. uh, paper and um, you referenced a few things, but mm-hmm. from your perspective, were, were there eras that were defined by a particular theory and then, mm-hmm. and then bring us into where you started to get curious about pushing the walls against, I guess, mm-hmm. the era in which you started researching in. Yeah. Uh, so, like, basically, uh, you know, I, I out, as I outlined in the paper, you know, basically the 1950s, and you know, Robert Gardner needs uh, to to be recognized for for his contribution here and, and and you know all of the the, the researchers i cite um, you know uh Dornier as well i uh, he needs to be recognized for for pushing the boundaries and doing the doing the hard work and really you know uh you know digging the the, the septic fields and the the basement for for everything that we have mm-hmm. and that's you know uh where uh, i'm not going to say who dug what but you know they they both really really were foundational and we needed them mm-hmm. um at the same time there are you know huge oversights in 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 their theories and you know they'll they'll admit that uh, Gardner is actually he doesn't he's not even a theorist he does he he just created a model Mm-hmm. And that was uh, that was the big thing. Uh, he was coming out of the 1950s, and uh, that that was a time where the the main psychological theory was behaviorism. It was starting to show some some of the flaws, you know. Uh, and a lot of people uh, credit Noam Chomsky with his. Uh, uh, what I think of as just kind of an, an appeal to incredulity, uh, as as a as a as a rebuttal, hmm. um, but uh, he you know he comes he came at at um, B. F. Skinner's behaviorist paradigm, saying you know well we can't really explain language uh, through the behaviorist model, and you know you know rewards and punishment. Uh, is, was the idea coming out of you know Pavlov and and everything uh, uh, that you know operant conditioning and uh, and classical conditioning those uh, those ways of you give a reward and that reinforces a behavior and that's going to somehow explain language. Mm-hmm. There are you know other learning mechanisms and Skinner was about learning, but he was also trying to talk about how do we motivate learning and explain behavior. And there's only one thing that we can do. We can only explain observed behaviors. And during the, the 1950s, lots and lots of psychologists, uh, you know, Albert Bandura and other psychologists, uh, Kurt Levine, uh, they came out and they said, well, no, there's there's other things that we can look at. You know, the, the mind is working in and of itself and, we're, you know, behavior is not the only part of this. And so Lambert was a part of that, you know, as a as a young researcher, he came out with uh, with what is actually uh, a, an incredibly advanced 
paper. The the Gardner and Lambert 1959 paper is uh, an incredibly advanced paper. He was using factor analysis, which for most uh, of your your listeners, some of you will know and some of you don't. But factor analysis is a it's an incredibly advanced mathematical technique for uh, for accounting for what different factors and how different ideas correlate together. And he managed to come up with uh, with these with this two factor model saying that the instrumental that working towards an instrumental goal, uh, you know, getting money or rewards uh, or an integrative goal, uh, working towards joining a community and being with people, mm-hmm. that those two separate ideas were uh, that they they were somehow dichotomous. Now we've learned they're not actually dichotomous, but that initial work kind of said, well, they kind of are. At least they work in different vectors. Hmm. And so you know, Lambert, uh, so Gardner and Lambert, they were they were working on this uh, uh, with this very advanced statistical method that they had to calculate by hand or by punch cards, which would have taken days to do uh, honestly and so you know right now if i ran a factor analysis it would take me 30 seconds if i had the data whereas uh for them you know this was this was a week of you know full-time work and so like that's incredible Mm. you know that that should be should be recognized and so he he you know all the work that came out of that you know of course it's going to be flawed uh it's it's you know, you're working with, you know, calculations done by hand. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how much can you model when, when you know, you've got to do all of your calculations on graph paper with a slide rule? It's, I mean, that's pretty impressive when you think about it. Um, it's impressive that, that you could come up with, uh, with, a, with a paradigm and a model that would, uh, that would actually explain anything. And so, you know, the, uh, that, and, and, you know, coming out of that, we get uh, these new ideas. And so, uh, um, you know, he was working uh, kind of uh, in parallel with a lot of the, the researchers that were coming up at that time. Um, and, you know, through the 1970s, where we saw kind of a blooming of theory in, uh, in the American, uh, you know, psychological trends, uh, you know, coming out of Carl Rogers, coming out of work uh, by de charms uh, by Julian Roeder and uh, you know kind of the, those uh, those kind of foundational theorists who were uh, who led us to uh, you know DC and Ryan mm-hmm. uh, and their self-determination theory uh, you know uh, you know Atkinson and uh, and his achievement motivations, uh, you know that and that's that has a relationship with uh, with uh, with Eccles' work uh, on uh, expectancy value, uh, Eccles and Wigfield and their expectancy value theory, uh, attribution theory by uh, Bernie Weiner, and you know uh, and importantly uh, social cognitive theory, and uh, you know that's a, that's a major theory of uh, of learning and how we learn uh, that has a motivational component. And, uh, you know, all of these, uh, these, these major theories came up and, you know, kind of defined uh, research after the, the 1980s. And so that, that's where, where we, you know, where we got 
uh, where we were when uh, when Dornier started coming up uh, back in the early '90s, and his work, uh, you know, kind of developing and synthesizing a lot of this, and he, you know, he his a lot of his work back in the '90s really brought together uh, again using some uh, some fairly advanced statistical methods and uh, you know using uh, using new ways to to model the uh, the motivation that people have and he created his own theory and that that kind of was the was the prevailing theory from basically you know 2005 up through 2015 and that was the time that uh, that you know Luke and I and uh, and many others uh, were you know we were doing our research and we were doing our work and a lot of the the feedback that we got during that time was why aren't you using this theory like what why is this not the the theory you use why don't you use the l2 motivational self system mm -hmm. and you know we wanted to come back well because it's not the only theory because it's not the only way to explain things and you know there are there are numerous missing pieces whereas the these other uh theories have uh have existing uh methods and mechanisms and and ways of of explaining and creating hypotheses, and so from a scientific perspective, those existing theories could be it could be thought of as as a bit more scientific. Whereas this, you know, the kind of Dornier's theory is very organic; um, it has grown up naturally. Um, but uh, but there are you know there are some some aspects of it that are missing, uh, especially uh, you know there's no. Uh, there's, there's no particular uh, treatment of competence within the theory. Uh, there, are, you know, there are other uh, other issues that I have where uh, what he describes as uh, the L2 learning experience is essentially modeled as modeled or based on the uh, the same items or almost the same items as. Uh, as self-determination theories, intrinsic motivation, you know, enjoying the class. I like my class. I have fun in class. And I, I, I kind of don't agree that that would be a, a measure of experience. And so, you know, there, there are, there are many other ways that we can model, uh, uh the, the, the elements that exist there. And so, uh, it's still based on kind of a similar, uh, semi-dichotomy, um, but the 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 dichotomies that uh, that Gardner and Lambert showed with the instrumental and uh, and integrative motives, and then Dornier's ideal L two self and two L two selves, uh, they're they're correlated, uh, and so they're not really dichotomous. Whereas uh, other theories have a more properly dichotomous set of variables and so you know that was uh, and so that was kind of a, a a struggle coming up is you know submitting papers to to language learning journals and having them say that you know well you know we don't take motivation papers that aren't from this paradigm hmm. and you know we're or you know the that uh editors would explicitly say like you know if you're not citing these papers and using these theories, then, you know, we can't accept it. And, it, you know, that, so that's kind of the tribalism that we saw mm -hmm. uh, during that during that early period. And it was it, it was quite frustrating because, you know, we really do want to kind of uh, shake things up and say, look, look, there's there's more out there. It's, uh, you know, it's a bigger field 
than uh, than just what we've got uh, what we've got within one theory. And so, yeah, I mean, and that's I, 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 that, yeah, you, I, that's what. That's what Dornier was facing as well. Like his, he, he even said in 1994, we need to bring in more theories. Mm. And so, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, this is kind of, uh, you know, I, I referenced this, uh, but the idea of, you know, don't seek the masters, seek what they sought. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, you touch on something with how academia can be frustrating because in, in some ways we're, we can only get into a PhD when we find a gap, right? And yes. then we, we explore a gap and, and we're trying to push the envelope or, or push something further. And then we get, we hit a brick wall. No, no, no. You got to reference what's done before. There's no comp for this or, and mm-hmm. I, I found that in my own research yeah. um, almost pushed me off entirely what I was doing just because it was always fighting up uphill. Mm-hmm. And I understand it at some point, you know, you're standing, you stand on the shoulder of giants. I, I like mm-hmm. what you said, you know, seek what they, they saw. Uh, that's a good, that's a good point. But a lot of times, yeah, the peer review process is, well, what's the comp for this? Okay, well, here's mm-hmm. the comp. You didn't reference it in your paper, uh, right. so we can't accept it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's yeah. that's frustrating. I guess when did you get to the point – because that's another difficult thing about academia when you're mm-hmm. submitting publications uh, or submitting papers for publication and, and a large majority are going to be rejected. Um, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're facing this criticism. Uh, you're, 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 you're at some point you're not maybe a PhD yet. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe advice for up and coming researchers or maybe w- when did you sort of feel like you had the confidence to push back against the system or even to write a paper like this, right? W- well, when was it a point where it was a shift in your thinking or were you were always kind of like, um, I'm, I'm always ready to push back. Cause I, I kind of struggle with that in the, the <laughs> stage I'm at. Yeah. Uh, this is kind of the paper I always wanted to write during, you know, after every, uh, after every rejected paper for, <laughs> you know, uh, for, uh, you know, you, you get those papers back and you want, you want to go to the editor. It's like, look, <laughs> come on. <now." laughs> uh, and, you know, uh, you know, you're being obtuse. And, uh, you know, that was, that's, that was a, a frustrating thing. And, you know, um, I was working with, uh, you know, with Rich Ryan and Phil Parker, uh, who are down at uh, Australian Catholic now, and they, you know, uh, you know, when when the paper got rejected from from a major language learning journal, uh, they got it back, and they were like, "Yeah, send this to a higher level education journal. It's going to get in." Mm-hmm. And so uh, they, you know, they, they their their immediate reaction was, "Don't send it. Don't send it back to uh, to language learning." Uh, uh, send it to uh, to somewhere else, uh, to an, uh, to another field, because uh, you know you can you can do better. And I think that's that's the thing. If you're if you're not finding the traction, at least for young researchers, if you're not finding the traction for you know for for non-empirical reasons, for reasons where the 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 quality of the paper. It, is not the is not what's in question, but the but the the paradigm of the paper is is the issue. Then you know send it to send it to an, an equal level journal in the you know in the social sciences, uh, at least if it's psychology, or see you know see what other outlets are out there that have that same level, that same citation index, that same. Uh, respect within the the field of academia how long did it take you 
to be sort of comfortable. It's almost a language in it in itself, you know, just navigating the waters of paper mm-hmm. of journals, right? Like yes. for me, like you know, I read a lot of papers, and I, I'm aware of you know what I think are kind of the top journals. But like mm-hmm. you said, you will get feedback from someone. Oh, well, this journal is probably not a good fit. Submit it to that journal. Mm-hmm. And for up and coming researchers, I think it can be kind of daunting, right? Because if you're going to mm-hmm. look for journals to submit to, I mean, there's just thousands. Yeah. And so did you, I, it's kind of like a separate kind of question. It's almost like a different skill. At some point, did you, did you set some time aside? Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to make a list of journals or I'm going to organize a system of types of journals and their categories and which journals I'm going to target for which paper. I mean, do you even think about that as you're writing papers? Cause like, I, I, I feel like I need to come up with a better organization system in yeah. that regard. The, I mean, I, I don't have a, a specific organization system. Uh, you know, I, I have a list of journals that I read regularly. Mm-hmm. I, you know, uh, I will go, you know, once a month and see what, what the latest issue with the latest uh, articles in uh, about there's about 20 25 journals that, uh, that I will just basically you know spend two three hours uh, just getting all the papers and indexing them in uh, in my my software uh, the the you know, the indexing software I use what do and, you use uh, I, I I'm I'm old school I use papers mm-hmm. um, the you know the the just a, a PDF manager and lets me, uh, you know, take notes on it and everything else. Um, uh, so yeah, papers is great. Uh, mm-hmm. but some people, uh, uh, you know, the, the version I use recently was, uh, was discontinued and I have to upgrade the, to their subscription service. So I'm a little bit frustrated by that, you know, <laughs> I, you know, pay, pay, you know, pay $60 once, uh, you know, or, uh, or, or pay, you know, $60 a year to continue using this. It's kind of like that's that, subscription model is quite frustrating but i know that that's the way that the world is going and so uh, you know i'll 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 suck it up eventually um (laughs) but yeah um and so yeah i have uh, you know i have a vague a vague notion of what uh of you know where a, a paper should go and you know I'm I'm wrong as often as I'm right with uh, with my submissions. You know, uh, here's it's kind of funny because I'm just thinking about this metaphor now. If I was going to classify myself as like a a pitcher, like mm-hmm. I get to the seventh or eighth, maybe I'm like I can pitch to the seventh mm-hmm. or eighth inning, but then once the eighth or ninth inning comes out, I can't even step on the mound anymore. By the time I'm <laughs> finished a paper, I just yeah. want it to be out and finished. Yes. It's like, I don't care. Get it out, get it published. I'm done with this mm-hmm. thing. Right. It's like, I almost need a closer to say, well, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa, no, no, no. We need to get you. It's like, I'm running the marathon and I'm tripping a hundred yards before the finish. I just don't care because at that point you're kind of burned out, but it's, it's almost yeah. like you need somebody. It's like, no, 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 no. Get your, get, oh, get this together. Yeah. And this is a really important part here where you need to choose the, you need to be careful, you know, you'd have to, um, and it's tough. Like I, I, I've had that feeling so many times. I just don't care. Just get it out. I don't care where it's published. Just please. I don't want to look through these journal articles. I don't want to match it up to the right. I don't really care. Just get it out there. I'm done with this thing. That's uh, that's the that's often the role of uh, of co-authors. That's you know that's why you have you know a first you know you as the first author 
you know, write the thing, and then you 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 send it off for a a critical pair of eyes to to make sure, you know, so that when you're you're looking at it, uh, and you're just like, I'm sick of this, and you you know, having a co-author who will, who will look at it and and you know hasn't looked at it in in two three months, but you've done the revisions, you've done all the processing, and then they 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 just look it over and kind of go, yeah. Yeah, that's right. You've you've done it. Or mm, try this. Uh, or you know they can cut two hundred words from wherever. Uh, you know, removing the you know uh, all of the unnecessary uh, prepositions or whatever that you that needs to happen to to get it back under a, a a specific word count or whatever the process needs to be. You know that. Um, yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm always I'm always asking questions like that because um, I'm just wondering what other people, how other p- people are thinking about it. Um, and again, the paper we're talking about today is the critical role of the individual in language education, new mm-hmm. directions from the learning sciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned positive psychology, and you mentioned how yeah. that's sort of a booming, almost like a trendy. It's probably not the mm-hmm. right word. Um, research I think field. We might, we might have crested that wave but yeah <laughs> uh-huh. and i guess i don't know if you mentioned the paper or i, I or you, you might have but you didn't focus one of the sections but you know dynamic system seems to be uh-huh. real big that uh, was coming i think what yeah, yeah what what's kind of, where are we going now um okay. and what kind of things are you really kind of focused on or because when, when i think of dynamic systems i'm thinking okay well what do we do with this? I mean, uh-huh. it's like, well, it's just, it seems like, okay, we acknowledge that all these things are happening and, you know, mm-hmm. some things are correlating, some things aren't. Um, mm-hmm. But as, you know, someone who wants to become a researcher in this, like, how do you even get your mind around that once you acknowledge, you know, dynamic systems? I mean, okay, so I tend to look at dynamic systems as, you know, it's, the way it's used a lot ends up being as kind of a philosophical paradigm. Hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot. Basically, there's a lot going on, and you know, it's a. I think it's it's a it's an excellent one. It's the. Uh, I tend to to take the same uh, the same look at this as as I look at uh, kind of the the boom in meta analyses hmm. and meta analytic thinking as a as a way of of approaching your your modeling knowing that whatever you model you know there's there's a very good chance that with a larger sample somewhere down the road somebody is going to find the opposite Uh, and you you hope that what you've modeled is modeled well enough and that what you have measured is measured adequately and accurately and uh so there's all but there's always a hedge there and that's you know that's what the the limitation section of our papers is always going to be about. It's always centered around the idea of no, we 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 may have uh, have something that's that's at issue here. Um, so if you've done you know a good longitudinal study, then there's a there's a better chance that you know by meta uh, by meta analytic thinking and by complex dynamic systems that what you've got is. Uh, is going to end up being being valid. It's going to it's going to play out uh, well in the end. Mm. And so uh, I think that's the uh, the biggest uh, the biggest thing. Now, the I I always 
try to push the uh, you know the envelope in terms of you know get a bigger sample, uh, get a get a more uh, a more complete model, uh, use a, a, you know use everything that you can at your disposal, but uh, no more than than you can handle. And so that's you know I think that's a big part of of the that kind of complex dynamic systems as well. Figuring out how uh, uh, how things work in uh, in linear and nonlinear fashion, um, you know. But again, the one of the the frustrating things that uh, that I've seen in in terms of the the complex dynamic systems trend, and uh, uh, you know uh, I've talked to Phil Hiver about this as well, is the the trend of kind of um, spaghetti strain uh, graphs of, you know, 15 individuals measured 15 times over the course of a semester uh, on, you know, five different measures. And, you know, well, this one went up and down and up and down, but this one went down and up and down and up. And, you know, what do we take away from that? Well, you know, at the end of the paper, they, they just say, well, we know that it's complex and dynamic. And that's really unsatisfying. Mm. <laughs> right. um, uh, and so, you know, uh, uh, there's nothing wrong with the mean. There's nothing wrong with the with the uh, with the average value. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it it's it tells a story. Um, whereas, uh, uh, you know, if I tried to tell, like, if you tried to watch. Uh, you know, a TV show, you know, a, a complicated TV show with, you know, three or four things uh, that are that are all supposed to be happening at the same time. Um, uh, you know, the uh, like I'm thinking, you know, something like Game of Thrones or 24 or something like that, where, you know, at this time, you know, these people are here and this time these people are here. If you tried to put all of that on one screen at one time and it's like everybody's kind of talking all at the same time, it's like you there's no way we can follow that. Um, and so, you know, part of the, the, the story of, uh, of writing a paper is telling it in a, in a clear and coherent fashion. Mm. And so, you know, figuring out ways to make that, you know, that, that graph that ends up looking like, you know, strained spaghetti, um, you know, spread out or, you know, macrame, uh, that, you, that, you know, some kids have glued onto a, uh, onto the, you know, a poster, um, that you're like, I, you know, I can't follow that. Um, do you, do you tend to use the same models? Do you focus uh, on the same models or what do you, I, what are you kind of thinking uh, about now? Right now. So, um, so I've, the 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 models in the papers that I've been using have been been relatively similar. I try to use pre post modeling. Uh, I try to uh, uh, you know to to measure measure the same thing over time, mm. uh, see how it relates to other things after you've controlled for that. Uh, you know I'm starting to work with uh, with some growth curve modeling uh, with one of my PhD students. Uh, you know for for things like self efficacy, uh, for you know for for competence beliefs trying to figure out how people change over time. Mm. And so uh, so basically figuring out uh, a model that works. Um, but a lot of the models that you that you will see end up kind of following this pre-post uh, approach, uh, you know something where you have, um, uh, kind of like in the paper that I that I presented in the special issue, you have a, a you know a, a pre-actional phase. You have, uh, 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 what Dornier calls a pre-actional phase. Um, what uh, uh, what other people uh, have have talked about, uh, you know uh, the you know 
uh, so Biggs and Telfer, um, as uh, as kind of a, a 3P model. Um, uh, and so, you know, uh, you figure out what happens at the start, what happens in the middle, and what happens at the end. Hmm. And so, in a way, you know, you always are following linear time, and you see how each of these things interacts with each other. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that's what I always try to do, is try to show in, in as clear a way as possible. If I'm, if I'm looking at only the variables, if I'm looking at the people, I try to see how people change over time. I try to model them in terms of a profile. Uh, I try to look at them in terms of, you know, how do they relate to uh, to one set of beliefs and and another, and then how do those uh, how does how does that uh, interact? You know, it's kind of interesting because your papers and uh, with Luke Fryer they they pop up a lot in. A, that, that's a, very nice. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because I know the school that you taught at, right? Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. makes me think. A lot of times when I go to conferences and I see people talking about things that they did or, you know, even teaching things they did. And I just think that this would not work at the school I'm at, you know, just like you're, you're, um, and so I'm wondering if that's one reason why you kind of rose to prominence because you were testing these things at a school with, um, now it might be changing, but from my Mm -hmm. perspective, and I guess this, this could lead to a conversation about compulsory education. I'm not sure, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. going from school A to school B one school having different sort of motivation um intensities right uh yeah. i'd almost like it's it's almost like it has to affect you as a researcher right so when you change schools multiple times mm-hmm. did you change your views on how to research motivation because for me at the school i'm at um mm-hmm. i think just the fact that it's compulsory is just a huge thing or <laughs> compulsory education plus past experiences with educa- with 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 English. I think mm-hmm. those are the two biggest factors. Now that mm-hmm. might not correlate at a different school. Yeah. Right? So but it seems like you, you've been consistent with what you've been doing. So it's like did you sort of stumble across something and just kept pushing or did you change your focus as you met different uh students? Um it so it's I've always kind of been of the the you know the idea that even within compulsory settings mm. you know there there are ways uh you know uh there are ways to make it more and less pleasant for everybody mm. um and you know you you can be the uh you know the stalking tiger teacher who's terrifying people and throwing people out of class by the the scruff of their neck or you know you can you, you can deal with people as you know as better people and you know expect them to be better and uh, you know and just treat them like human beings mm-hmm. uh, and I think that you know that's a lot of what uh, what I always tried to come back to and you know work with people um, you know be uh, be a person uh, for them and then uh, and then treat them as people. And you know, I, I, so I don't think that's necessarily changed over time. Um, the there are things that uh, you know specific uh, you know specific applications of the way that I would do that, uh, which change and uh, and that that I have I've tried to implement in newer ways and update. And so I'm I'm constantly thinking about the the perspective of 
uh, of the people that I'm with. Uh, you know, uh, I was having a conversation the other day where you know if you can uh, if you can treat people uh, the way you'd want to be treated, that's the golden rule. But if you treat people the way that they want to be treated, that's kind of the platinum rule. <laughs> And, uh, you know, so I've, you know, uh, I don't remember exactly where I heard that, but I remember thinking that that's a really, really great way to, uh, uh, to approach human interaction. Well, I was, and- I was having the same kind of conversation and, uh, I feel like I'm a different teacher depending on the context. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when I first came to the school that I'm at, which you're familiar mm-hmm. with, I had come from a different approach and I used mm-hmm. the same approach and I got really burned out. Mm-hmm. And then I became much more of a strict teacher yep. and it became much easier for everybody. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't, I, I wasn't my ideal teacher self or whatever. And then I teach mm-hmm. part-time at another school where the students are highly motivated and I'm mm-hmm. a way different teacher there. So yep. even as an educator, I just, I, I totally shift even the way I approach things depending on, like my view of how motivated the students are. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but I think at the center of what we're doing, we're always teachers. Mm-hmm. And so the more the more clarity and structure that you can provide, I mean, you know, instruction, structure is, it's a part of the word. Mm. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're finding a way to build something, to put things together, to put it, uh, you know, to put it in a structure and we're, we're finding, uh, we're finding ways to do that. And so, you know, as you know, we can be strict, uh, but we don't have to be mean. Mm. We don't have to, uh, you know, uh, you know, just laying everything out and saying like, look, this is what has to happen. This is what has to happen. This is, you know, this is the requirement. Um, no, there's no exceptions for this. Um, and, and, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be a jerk to, uh, to, to say that mm. you can really just lay that out in a way. It's like, look, I'm not mad at you for, for not doing this. I just need it done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it needs to happen. And that's, um, and that's, that's another yeah. point, which if we're talking about from the educator perspective, like mm-hmm. sometimes I will be a bit, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a jerk, but I'm a bit more harsh, I would say, because mm-hmm. sometimes I'm testing whether the students are listening. Okay. And I want mm-hmm. to establish a situation where once I know, okay, they are trying their best. Now I can adapt and help them. Cause mm-hmm. like so, so many times early on, uh, I'd be teaching and then I was confused whether it was a competency thing or if it was, uh, I'm actually paying attention thing. And mm-hmm. oftentimes someone was just not paying attention at all. And I had to repeat mm-hmm. myself over and over again. So I try mm-hmm. to establish some sort of thing where you need to pay attention yep. as best you can. And then that's where we'll meet halfway. Because yep. before it was just, I was just repeating over and over again. Yeah. Uh, because sometimes it's hard to tell in the Japanese context, right? And well, even now with people wearing masks all the time, yeah. whether yeah. someone's actually paying attention. So if, if I can, if I can establish like, okay, I know they're paying attention. They don't understand. I need to, I need to, you know, kick in here. So yeah. like, it's almost like two things going on at the same time. I don't know if that's really a question. It's just. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a good observation and it's, uh, you know, if I can take that and run with it, uh, you know, it reminds me of something I used to do raising my kids bilingually um, is just trying to trying to make sure that they've heard me. Mm. And so, you know, I would I would, you know, quite literally ask my my two year old, you know, repeat what I said. What did I just say? 
Mm. Uh, you know, did you did you hear me? You know, uh, uh, you know, okay, say it, then say it to me, uh, and then you know, just make sure that they heard, uh, and ensure that the you know that that message is clear in their brain. Uh, and, uh, you know, and so, you know, uh, you, you don't have to, you know, hit anybody. You can just say like, look, did you, did you hear me? Did you actually hear me? Okay. Say what I said, repeat it back to me. Tell me what you heard. And, you know, oftentimes if they can't do that, they haven't heard you. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, I, I like to keep these around 50 minutes. So maybe there's, I could talk a lot more. Um, Again, the paper is the critical role of the individual in language education. New directions from the learning sciences. Maybe, let me maybe finish with this. Okay. Uh, so you talked about karate. Yes. Um, so I actually just started karate in August. Okay, great. And uh, boy, is it is it fun. So were you <laughs> you were so you were sort of um, proficient before you came to Japan, or what's the yeah, story? Uh, I I started in college. I'd done three years uh, in college. And then, uh, you know, I, I came here and started, I had to start all over. Um, but okay. yeah, it was, it, are you it, still it was a, doing it? Uh, on and off. I'm much more into triathlons these days. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. That makes up most of my, my physical, uh, activity time. But, uh, you know, uh, once, twice a week, I will, you know, stretch out and try to, uh, you know, try to make sure I've still, you know, got the moves can still, uh, can still do what I, what I like to do. So, yeah. I think it's great. And it was, it's kind of connected to something that, um, Steven Ryan was talking about one, <laughs> one reason starting windsurfing. He just thought it was so <laughs> cool, especially as an educator <laughs> to go back to a skill where you're at zero. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. That's what, I mean, and that's what, uh, you know, having done, uh, you know, now, 22 years of karate uh and uh prior to this uh you know uh having done wrestling and and other things in high school and you know uh, having having done you know boxing and things like that uh you know coming up it's just learning uh, learning all that again and then coming back now to to triathlons which is just completely different Mm. uh skill set uh and again you know a way of approaching things it's great um and i find it balances everything else you do um, is having that uh, that other uh that other way of just expressing things and you know finding a way to blow off steam um and you know uh something and you know for me i can just jump out take a run go for a swim and, and be back in my office in you know within an hour and you know i'll feel i'll feel much better feel much more energized and you know any problem that i was working on just you can uh, you can process that so much easier when you leave it a little bit and just and just being reminded you know things are hard when you first start out yeah and you take everything for granted when you already know everything you forget what you know kind of thing absolutely yeah Uh, my karate teachers are fantastic they are just so much better than me Um, but in fairness (laughs) to me they're only teaching you know one or two classes a week right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and yeah the classes are long but yeah, I don't think they could keep that up if they taught twelve week. I just don't know if they could do it the way they're doing it so well. I know people who do. Wow. Uh, you How? Know, uh, yeah, they're, they're. I mean, they're 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 tough and they're out there and they do. You know, they've got they've got the endurance and the skill to do that. You know, they're people who run. They'll they'll run quite a few classes every week. Um, mm. I know. Yeah. They're they're amazing. Uh, I actually yeah. took a karate test yesterday. 
Oh, congrats. Uh, well, <laughs> I just totally screwed up. Something I've never screwed up before. I, I froze. <laughs> it was one of those moments. And it was it was fun. It was fun, right? Because I, you know, I study this kind of stuff, the effects yeah. of stress on performance. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I was like, wow, there it is. I just mm-hmm. never done that before. Under pressure. Just, yeah, that was that was weird. All right. That'll do. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, again, the paper is the critical role of the individual and language education, new directions from the learning sciences. Dr. Yes. Olga Baldwin, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It's been great. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.